The gospel reading is from Mark chapter 10, verses 32 through 45. They were on their way up to Jerusalem with Jesus leading the way, and the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the son of man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. What do you want me to do for you? He asked. They replied, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. You, do, you don't know what you are asking, Jesus said. Can you drink the cup I drink or be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with. But to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared. When the 10 heard about this, they became indignant with James and John. Jesus called them together and said, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks, and thanks be to God. God. The disciples have been with Jesus for quite some time now. They've traveled many miles and they've turned uh, toward Jerusalem in the final stretch of the campaign. Some of the disciples are convinced that their leader, their party, will prevail. And at least two of them begin to jockey for positions in the new administration. This naked political ambition is really astonishing, especially if, as Mark tells it, it comes on the heels of Jesus' repeated teaching that this campaign is going to Jerusalem, where he will surrender to death. As readers, we've been prepped to wonder, how could they? How could they be so dense, so obtuse? How could they miss not just the theological minutiae, not just minor details of the gospel, but really the main thing about how Jesus is different from every other teacher, every other leader, every other redeemer that's come before them, before him. Jesus pulls his disciples aside one more time and reminds them of the ominous end of their journey. And we can almost sense Jesus's weariness, his exasperation at having to explain the basic nature of his movement over and over to its leaders. The Son of God has come to serve rather than be served. 
to actively disadvantage himself for the sake of others, culminating in a gruesome death that will in some way encapsulate his mission. And leadership in this kingdom belongs only to those who learn and follow the way of the cross, those who are prepared to serve and suffer at Jesus' side rather than aspire to greatness found in power and in domination and in the way that the leaders that they're all familiar with hold leadership. Again, we are told, he took the 12 aside and told them what was going to happen to him. To him, We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and teachers of the law who will condemn him to death and hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise. Mark starts off this section by saying again, Jesus took the 12 aside. That is the third time. It seems he constantly has to reset his disciples' focus. But perhaps we should be a little bit more sympathetic to them. For how few of us, what, a, what tiny fraction of the world would think of this as a legitimate way to change the world. And it's harder still to believe that God would reveal himself as a suffering servant rather than a conquering military hero. This is all so difficult to believe, especially in daily life, to believe that God is actually like this and that the way to a new world is through surrender. Even the leaders of this new world, the disciples, miss it over and over and over again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him. Teacher, they said, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. It's comically self-involved. Can't you imagine James and John decades later thinking, hoping that this unflattering episode has finally been lost to history once and for all? And then after all that time, Mark writes a gospel account that gets circulated widely, that shares their most tactless and greedy moment with all the world. Matthew adds a little bit to this episode. He tells it a slightly different way because, and he makes them look even worse because he has their mom coming to Jesus to ask on their behalf for sort of cabinet positions in the new administration. They are so desirous to have positions of power close to Jesus that they ask their mom to do a little politicking for them. The rest of the disciples see this and they're much displeased as the King James Version has it, or they're indignant as most modern translations render it. Indignant is a word that conveys both anger and sadness, disappointment. You see, they're certainly mad at James and John because 
they're taking the initiative that the other 10 should have taken for themselves, or so their thinking goes. And they're asking for what all of the other disciples probably want, but they're also sad because now they might miss out to these ambitious brothers. They asked Jesus, let one of us sit at your right and the other at your left in your glory. And Jesus tells them, friends, you don't know what you ask me. Those who sit on my right and on my left, those who stand with me, they won't get acclaim, they won't get status, they won't get advantage. They will in fact be the most extraordinarily disadvantaged. They will be the most profound sufferers. And who does end up on Jesus's right and on his left? Not the leaders of the world, but two thieves, common criminals who are crucified beside Jesus. Greatness in Jesus' kingdom or in his glory, as Mark says, it doesn't mean what greatness means in the present age. It doesn't mean status and power and wealth and money, but it means being willing to suffer. It means deliberately disadvantaging yourself for the advantage of others. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom is a commerce word. It's a, it's a payment word. We're familiar with it from movies. What happens when a bad guy kidnaps the main character? They call and they demand a ransom, a payment, to redeem the life of the person who is in their captivity. And if you read through the Old Testament, you read constantly about God demanding a payment. You read over and over about a ransom that needs to be made for people coming before God. It could be in the form of shekels, actual money, or it could be animal sacrifice. It could be blood sacrifice, or even the sacrifice of firstborn sons. To be in relationship with God, it seems, one must make a sacrifice. You must pay a ransom. Now, it's a bit more complicated than that. But in many ways, this is exactly what we would expect from religion. Sacrifice, payment, ransom, making amends. These are the means by which humans seek to make themselves sacred, to sort of penetrate into the divine mind and to be in community with God's people. It's a human instinct to try and appease God or to create a a bridge between him and us. And the higher the relationship or favor sought, the greater the ransom that we have to pay. But Jesus comes on behalf of God, not demanding ransom, but offering himself as the ransom. He's the firstborn son, you see. He's the atoning sacrifice that the Hebrew scriptures pointed to. He's the blood on the door that pays the ransom for many. 
As the Son of God, he makes the payment that is infinitely valuable, that no amount of need can exhaust. See, God works his way to us in suffering, in taking on the ultimate disadvantage upon himself. You see, he gets our evil, he gets our sin, he gets our duplicity, our violence, our anger, and we get, we get his peace, we get his joy, we get his forgiveness, we get his life. On the cross, we see God taking our sin into himself and being scarred forever. The good news of Christianity says that while we injure others, while we injure ourselves, while we injure our world, that more ultimately, our sin does injury to God himself. Because Jesus, Jesus is marked. He is marked hands and feet and head forever. And yet he doesn't look at us and say, now you go work it off. Now pay me back. Now pay the ransom that I paid for you. But what does he say? He says willfully, joyfully, I I will pay the ransom for you. He absorbs and he pays for all of our sin and then rises again in love to seal us unto the heavenly life. He will suffer over and over on our behalf. And he will absorb the ultimate disadvantage so that you can be eternally advantaged in his kingdom. Maximilian Kolbe was a Polish priest in the middle of the last century. And in the 1930s, he was supervising a monastery in Warsaw when Germany invaded. He knew that the monastery would be seized, and so he sent most of the friars home, but he chose to stay. He was imprisoned and then released, and he returned to the monastery where he and the other friars that had returned hid and sheltered 2,000 Jews from the Gestapo. In May of 1941, the monastery was closed down for good, and Maximilian and Four of his companions were taken to Auschwitz. He carried on his priestly work there surreptitiously, hearing confessions in unlikely places and celebrating the Lord's Supper with bread and wine that had been smuggled into the concentration camp for that purpose. In July of 1941, three men from Kolbe's bunker escaped. And to discourage future escape attempts, the remaining men of the bunker were led out and 10 were randomly selected to be taken to an underground cell where they would be starved to death. One of the most gruesome and painful ways to die. One of the 10 that were selected was a man named Francis Gajinowitz. And when he was called out, he cried out in despair inconsolable because he had a wife 
and children that he didn't want to leave orphaned and widowed. Maximilian stepped forward and he volunteered to take Francis's place. And he joined the other nine men in a large cell and was left there to starve. For days, he encouraged the other prisoners with prayers and with psalms and with meditations on the crucifixion of Jesus. And after two weeks, only four were still alive, for they had been starving beforehand as well. And of those four, only Maximilian was left still fully conscious. All four of them were killed with injections of carbolic acid on August 14th, 1941. Francis Gaginowitz, however, he lived 53 more years, dying in 1995 at the age of 93. Maximilian paid Francis's ransom at the cost of his own life, a ransom he didn't have to pay, but he chose to pay. As we come to the table, as we confess our faith, the question I want us all to consider, including myself, is what do you want Jesus to do for you? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would ask the right questions. I pray that we would look at our world with both hopeful and suspicious eyes, that we would have hope to know that you are breathing new life into a dying world, but that we would be suspicious and know that our world is dying and know that the promises offered by human leaders are only that, they're only promises. Father, I pray that we would see through our world into the new world that you are creating and that we would invite by our lives that new world into the present world. Father, I pray that in town would be an outpost of that new world. I pray that we would move through the difficulties of this season of life with hope, with endurance, with courage, with a different set of eyes and asking different questions. And I pray that you would support us. I pray that you would encourage us. I pray that we would be a light to the world, not because we are so smart, not because we are so strong, but because your strength is seen in weakness. Father, I pray that we would find our meaning and find our orientation in your sacrificial death and your overcoming resurrection. I pray that we would stake our claim upon the future through those things. And as we partake of these elements, would you feed us in all the ways that our souls are needy and hungry and thirsty. And we pray in your son Jesus' name. Amen.